Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. So hey, tonight I have Phil Session and Jen Peebles with me again, as promised, doing the post-election summary. So this is going to be our discussion about things that have happened since the election. And I'm glad that everybody could join me for this. Just to say, I was kind of hoping that we'd have a result that everyone would have agreed on by now and kind of surprised that anybody is still dragging this out, but they are. So first of all, welcome, Phil and Jen. Thank you. I was going to say, most reasonable people agree on the outcome of the election. (laughs) um, I think even even most unreasonable people agree on it. I think it's just a few unreasonable people (laughs) that still haven't come around. You wouldn't know that by the folks that attended the Million MAGA March. Was it (laughs) a million? It it was not. It was a permit taken out, if I'm not mistaken, of 10,000. Good wording, I suppose. It's a nice little wording, like one million moms. Yeah. Whatever that group is, it's the same type of thing. I saw like a few dozen people protesting outside of some of the uh, ballot locations in the in the states that were still counting ballots there late at the end. It wasn't a uh, intimidating crowd, to say the least. No, I mean, Alex Jones is certainly making his rounds. He was in Arizona and then he he was at in Washington, D.C. today. So, you know, they may have only had 10,000 in D.C. today for their million MAGA march. But they had an all-star crowd, so they had the Proud Boys show up, and <laughs> Alex Jones was there to entertain the masses. And All Trump the- took the time to tweet out. Um, it was a somebody took a, fo- a a video of the crowd that was going on, and Trump retweeted that, saying, "We will win," as if there's still a major dispute that's still up in the air that plays to his base and what they believe what reality is, I suppose. And what is reality? So what we have in reality right now is an electoral college that is literally flip-flop from 2016, an upside down result based on what happened in 2016 and the landslide victory that you know Trump was doing laps over is now his loss, except that he's not owning that at this point yet. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with that? At first, it, it was a little bit nerve wracking because the mail-in ballots were voted last. And so we saw these tight, what we thought were tight races or what looked like tight races. And there was some talk about what they were calling the red mirage, right? The That effect of counting those election day ballots first. And so that Trump was looking really good in the initial results. But then when the mail-in ballots started to come in, that's when things started to really go downhill. And now it's just sort of a butt whooping. The EC has followed the popular vote to just a a huge victory. Well, what's interesting to me is that 
four years ago, they were calling the 306 electoral college votes and losing the popular vote a landslide victory. Mm -hmm. so somebody pulled up an old tweet of Kellyanne Conway where she was talking about this is a landslide, it's historic and everything. So people are trolling her now saying, hey, it's even better when you win the popular vote. It is. Well, and, and you know, while that is a funny kind of trolling thing to say, how disturbing was it in 2016 when we saw millions of more people voting for a candidate who then lost the election? That was a travesty. There was a candidate that was calling it the tyranny of the majority or right. you, know, you avoid the tyranny of the majority with the, with the electoral college. It's like, no, it is the, it's the tyranny right there. It's the tyr tyranny of the people in power. It's about subjugating the people in a situation where there's no real reason to do so. There's no reason here that the people should not be able to vote this candidate in or, or shouldn't have been able to vote in a candidate in 2016. There wasn't some problem there. Jen, you wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the EC and some things that you had been uh, listening to or, or subscribing to to inform yeah. yourself a little bit and some, some items that you wanted to discuss. So essentially, I mean, the Electoral College, people have been sold a bill of goods about what the purpose of the Electoral College is. And, it, and it's this idea that it, it somehow protects minorities from the tyranny of the majority. And I was reading an article recently, and unfortunately, I cannot remember where or what the title of the article was, but it made the, a very good point about what the framers had in mind when they were talking about the tyranny of the majority. They didn't have the same concept of minority that we do. In their world, the minority were the landed gentry. So they were the rich people. The, the majority that they wanted to protect everybody from were the unwashed masses, uneducated people who might fall for some populist candidate, basically tax them, tax the rich people. I mean, they wanted what they wanted, basically, they were elites, and they wanted to make sure that the elites retained power. They felt that they were um, specifically suited to rule or yeah. to serve or whatever you want to call it, but they wanted that power and they wanted to set up a system where wealthy white men basically retain that power. Right. And so, you know, it was a relic of slavery and it kept wealthy landowners in particular in power at the expense of everybody else. So if you had money, you could retain power and the electoral college was a way of, of doing that and making sure that your guy um, got into the White House and that some populist candidate who might tax rich people to pay for, oh my gosh, free education for poor people, you know, that wouldn't happen. Or that they might say, hey, yes, black people actually do have the same right to education and liberty and everything as everybody else, you know. Or that the vote of a person of color should matter as much as the vote of a white person. Today, we have an electoral college that does that, right? It basically says if you're black, your vote is not going to matter as much as if you're white because the states that are predominantly white and landed are going to count more. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it was a three-fifths rule because, you know, the people, the, the slave-owning states didn't have a large voting population. And so the way they pumped up their voting population numbers is that they, they said, oh, I have all these enslaved people. Let's count each one of them as three-fifths of a person. And that boosted the population numbers and gave them outsized political power. And so now what we have is an electoral college system that gives outsized political power to specific states, primarily in the Midwest, whose interests may not align with really anyone. And those are the, the states that get most of the attention 
in presidential elections, you know, to the detriment of everyone else. If you had a system where, you know, the popular vote elected the president, then you'd have campaign stops in Texas and in California and a lot more in Arizona. And not because they're swing states, but because there's a large population that might align with your party's platform and you'd want those votes. And I think you'd have a lot more engaged voting population if you had that versus now. I've seen a lot of progressive people saying, well, it doesn't matter which way I vote because I live in a blue state, so Mm -hmm. I don't care. Or people in Oklahoma who say, doesn't matter which way I vote because I live in a deep red state. You know, right now the electoral college is one of those ways that we disenfranchise a lot of people because we make sure their vote doesn't count. I saw a really great image posted with a, a message on it. It said Stacey Abrams has shown us that there aren't red states. There are just states with a lot of voter suppression. Yes, yeah. exactly. And Texas is one of those. And that's one of the points that a lot of people have been making. This state is like the hardest state to vote in. Look at at the voter turnout that we just had in the election. You know, we didn't end up going all the way for Biden in this election. And we didn't elect elect MJ Hagar over Cornyn. But, you know, we got a lot closer in the presidential election. It's been trending. The the, uh, Republican majority, uh, Republican win percentage in Texas has been trending down significantly for the last three cycles. I think it's just a matter of time. I I think that if we just, just did away with the Electoral College at some point in the next few years, that you would see a lot more voter turnout, especially a lot more um, progressive turnout in Texas because people wouldn't feel like their vote didn't count. Right. And that's, it's always been interesting to me that, I mean, we only, we employed that electoral college only for the executive branch, only for president and vice president. We were not using that method for any other type of deal. And so it's like everyone else is a popular, uh, is a popular vote. So like even talking about the Hagar and Cornyn, it was like, yeah, it's a, it depends on how many votes they get, individual votes that they're able to amass. And that's what you've got. Um, And as you say, like that vote, it was close, even in the 2018 cycle between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, even that was much closer than they thought, forcing the Republicans to have to campaign in Texas, mm-hmm. which was an unexpected thing for them to do, to actually hold rallies in Texas. Trump came to Texas. Right. You know, it, it was the whole nine yards because they were realizing that, oh, goodness, if they don't do more to turn out their base, they actually might lose in Texas. As time moves on, that would be wonderful. But yeah, on the national scale, this electoral college, like the fact that the engagement, as Jen was just referring to, I mean, it's a serious issue. And when people don't turn out for the top of that ticket, then that has ramifications for those that are not at the top of the ticket that are just saying, oh, well, it's a blue state or it's a red state. Therefore, I'm not going to spend the time to go out to vote because some people have to put out a lot of work and effort to go vote, depending on where they are, what their resources are, if they have access to transportation, can they take off of work, et cetera? Like, do they have kids? Do they have somebody to watch the kids? You know, there's roadblocks that can get in front of people. And so it's not just convincing somebody to vote for you. It's convincing someone to vote for you and get through the artificial barriers that may be put into place like Governor Abbott saying that, oh, well, only one location per county to drop off, you know, your uh, mail-in ballot if you want to drop it off in person so that it's counted and you don't have to clog up the postal service system, only one place per county. And when you're living in some West Texas counties where you don't have a huge population, that may be okay. But then you have your Dallas, your Tarrant, your Houston, 
and massive, massive millions of folks in this particular county of all different shapes and sizes as far as their economic ability to be able to move around there, how much they can leverage from their personal lives to go do this and actually make sure that their vote is counted at the very least for the local elections, even if the state stays uh, red. But it was a swarm of people who fought against that and came out to vote anyway. And we had this record turnout all over in places in Texas. But with time, you know, Texas might move, but getting rid of the electoral college, just say one person, one vote for every position. Every position that's on the ballot, we're going to count one person, one vote. And if you get the most votes, if you convince the most amount of people to vote for you, you've got it. You lead the country because you literally got more votes, not, oh, well, we're going to use this this system and we're going to assign these electors over here. And even though you lost by millions, we're still going to give you the presidency because of this old system that's there. You didn't get voted in by the majority of the people. It was the system that put you over the edge. And and an old racist system, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. Racist, sexist system. Well, and the thing is, I mean, if, if we had, you know, our president elected by popular vote, we would have known the outcome of the election on Tuesday night. There wouldn't have been any doubt because all the same demographics are in play. It's just that you don't have to um, have a second tally sheet that calculates electoral college votes based on what, frankly, are arbitrary lines on a map that split populations up. Mm -hmm. So we would have known. We wouldn't have had, you know, weeks of uncertainty. And even now, you know, there's this refusal to start an orderly transition And that moves into the next topic, actually, which is, how about that transition that that isn't happening? (laughs) And so right now, we have an administration that could be coming in and starting their COVID response. And I do appreciate the fact that they're starting as they can. So basically, they're, they're not looking at it as a complete blocker, right? On the Biden side, they're basically saying, we can still put a group together, we can still gather information, we can still start working on a plan and meeting with people. You know, they're already talking to governors, they're reaching out, they're making the inroads, and they're doing everything that they can do without the transition. And I, I very much respect the fact that instead of railing against Trump and making it about Trump, they're basically saying, we're knuckling down, we're going to start the work. This is about helping people, saving people during a pandemic and the president's going to do what he's going to do. He has a legal right to do this. We can't stop him. So we're going to do what we can do in the meantime to try and get prepared to start protecting people the moment we enter office. It's such a contrast from, I think, all of the conservative voices that were saying, oh, just wait till after the election and COVID's just going to melt away. You're not going to hear about it again. And literally, it was like one of the first things that Biden started doing was putting together his coalition, putting together people choosing for his cabinet. And I do love the fact that he's choosing very diverse people for the cabinet. So I'm glad that there's going to be a lot of diversity around him because I do agree that he's kind of, you know, he's kind of an old white guy and he has a lot to learn (laughs) that he probably won't. But the good thing about him is that he is not stopping diversity from entering into power. I'm putting it that way on purpose because I don't really see it as it's not up to white people to give or grant or bequeath other people with power or men to bequeath power to women. It's not a gift. It's a right. And it's a, it's an expectation and everyone deserves representation. And the fact that it's denied is actually grotesque. So for me, 
what's good about Biden, I'm not going to say it's that he's inviting diversity, it's that he's not blocking diversity. So he's allowing that diversity to take place in a way that it should take place and, and not be blocked. Well, and, and I would say that from what I've seen so far, he's actually celebrating the diversity in and recognizing it as the strength that it is. Yeah, it absolutely is the strength. And I think that we can see that in the engagement of voters in, for example, Georgia. Knowing that a Black woman was on the ticket was a massive advantage for Georgia voters. And I I would argue for voters in Texas as well. Knowing that we were, you know, we were not only voting for a kind and decent human being to be the president, but we were voting for the first woman, first black woman to be elected as vice president. My emotions following always revolved around a sense of relief that we're going to end this nightmare. But every once in a while I stop and it just washes over me. It's like, we just elected a black woman as our vice president. (laughs) I'm having that exact same experience, right? I get so overwhelmed by the larger issue of the nightmare that is still won't die. Even though I feel like it's nearing the end, I can feel myself waking up from it. And I'm just so grateful that we're ending that prior administration. And I also have to kind of remind myself that we have a woman who is so intersectional and represents multiple communities that are now having a first in the vice presidency and who potentially could end up being the first woman president, the first black woman president. Who knows what can happen you know, in the future, but at the same time, it is hard to kind of remember to celebrate that with all of the other turmoil that's going on. Yes, you know, at the same time, I'm feeling this sense of relief and this this overwhelming joy at Kamala Harris is going to be our vice president. At the same time, I sometimes feel real anger that I'm not able to feel that all the time because, again, this sense of relief kind of pervades everything because we're ending this national nightmare. It's not like when we elected Barack Obama as president, when it was just this unmitigated joy. Look what we did. And I have to tell this story because my son was three years old, you know, in 2008 when we elected Barack Obama. California, as soon as California was called, of course, you know, it was done. You know, he was the president-elect. So we're all celebrating and everything. And Alex asked me, because he's very young, he's three years old. He's like, Mom, did we just do something good? And I said, sweetie, we just did something amazing. And so I got to explain to my three-year-old son what that meant. It was such a great thing. And it's such a contrast with now. The feeling is just that the national nightmare is over. And the story for this election cycle, after having to explain to my son four years ago that Hillary Clinton is not going to be our first woman president and to see the disappointment and the fear on his face when I told him that. This time, as soon as Biden hit 270, I had it up on my phone and I showed him the electoral map and he was looking at it with this look of concern on his face. And I said, no, sweetie, don't pay any attention to the amount of red and blue because we don't vote by geography. I said, look at the electoral count. And he looked at the electoral count and he got a big grin on his face. And it was this like, oh yeah, we did this. So this is it, but it's a, it's the relief. It's not the joy that we felt in 2008. 
I would like to interject that when I did see um, Kamala Harris step up to give her speech, my initial reaction was I saw the white suit. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, she's doing just what Hillary did. She's got the white suit. It's the the hat tip to the suffragettes and the women's vote. And then the next thing I thought was, I'm so ashamed that the suffragettes didn't acknowledge Black women as also being included in that push for equality. It's just, it was so hard for me as a white woman to sort of embrace the generosity that she was expressing by giving that sort of honor of a hat tip to the suffragette movement when she would not have been included. I mean, it it was like, that's why I love her intersectionality, right? She's the person that can walk out there, be a woman of color, wear that white. And I would feel like if I did it, I would feel bad because I know that it was an exclusionary Uh, women's movement. It wasn't really women. It was white women. And so for me, it was just like, she can do that. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. She can do it because of her intersectionality. I appreciate that so much about her, but I do want folks to keep in mind that that women's vote was not really for women. It was for white women. Once it actually came down the pike, it was the same feeling for me where it was, it was relief. Like that was, that was all that I could feel, which I hated after the fact. And and I did watch like when Kamala and Biden, you know, they they took the stage and did their big speech and no, it was, no, everything was cool and awesome on, this was last, it's like a week ago now. Watch that. And it's like, like this, this is a speech. Like I'm here for all of this, but it was dread because, you know, last in 2016, it was this horrible moment and things have gotten so much worse along these last four years. It's been thing after thing. Every day or week is just, oh, what, what's happening this time? Like, what's, what did he say? What did the administration do? Like, it's, it's always been, what's wrong now? And sometimes multiple times <laughs> per day. About what fresh hell is this? That's been the real deal for the last four years. Fresh every week, something new. And it's just like, where is the bottom of this pit? At some point, we have to hit that bottom. And yet it just kind of kept moving on. And we just kept getting deeper as time went on. And so once he finally hit it, and I saw, I had to look it up on Associated Press, and I pulled up the Google, I need to see everything that has happened. And once I did, it was just like, thank God. He's not going to go quietly into the night. I knew that for sure. But my goodness, it's going to be a huge change from day to day, not having to worry about what ridiculous thing did he tweet did he say, did he insult at one of his news briefings or whatever else? Like what, what did he do on the world stage that embarrassed the rest of us this yeah. time around? I mean, I'm sure Biden is going to have, you know, everybody has their moments, whatever that moment is. Obama's oh, tan yeah. suit. <laughs> Obama's tan suit. Can't have that. Oh, it's a national yeah. travesty. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I, I understand Biden's rhetoric is not, you know, without some, some racism, right? I mean, there's things that he says that I just sort of cringe sometimes. And I just think, oh, I probably wouldn't say it that way. (laughs) But I know that he's the type of person who can acknowledge a mistake, who can apologize for a mistake, who can try to do better. But we had, yeah, and we have a president who's in office right now who cannot acknowledge a mistake, would, would almost rather, you know, kill people than acknowledge that he's made a mistake. Well, not almost, but he would rather kill people than admit he's made a mistake. Mistake. He won't back down, won't say that he can do better, that he can correct anything, and has some of the most homogenous people around him. 
as far as just a slew of yes men doing whatever he tells them to do. To this day now, even though Biden has been basically elected and is the president-elect, you have a president in office who is backed still by most of the Republicans in leadership who will not go against him because they're terrified of the tweets or whatever else is going on. I don't know if it's the RNC hack or what. I don't know what's over their heads or what they're afraid of, but people will not stand up to this president if they feel like he can do damage to them. And in the meantime, we have an incoming administration who is welcoming whoever wants to come to that table who is appointing uh, transgender people, who is appointing people of color, who is bringing in folks to say, I want your ideas. I want to know what you have to say. And I think we're going to see how that impacts protests from marginalized people once they actually are allowed the voice that they deserve to have in power. Once you're represented it is so much easier to go through a real due process channel to get what you want instead of having to go out and just send that cry up from the streets. You don't have to do that when you actually have the ear of the people in power where you can go and bring your cause and your problems to them and say, this is what's happening with us. And you know that you'll be heard and you'll be listened to. That really cuts down on the frustration that erupts in the streets when you have access to power. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that these politicians, these Republican politicians are afraid of is not so much what Trump is going to tweet because he's going to do whatever he does. I think they're afraid of the Trump voters because Trump has tapped into a particular virulent, particularly virulent strain of racism, sexism, xenophobia, all of the worst of whatever we have to offer as Americans. He's tapped into it and he's amplified it. That's kind of what I mean when I say they're afraid of the tweets, right? Obviously, yeah. if the tweets were not backed by a bunch of angry people yeah. making up, you know, white people making up grievances, yes. if they didn't have that behind it, there wouldn't be anything to it. He'd just be a, a wolf howling in the wilderness. But he has that pack behind him and they are afraid of those those voters. And those are the voters. Let me just say, I, I saw the most appalling thing on television this morning when I turned it on. There was a um, black woman representative, a freshman incoming, who wore a Breonna Taylor mask to honor Breonna Taylor yeah. and say her name. And people were calling her Breonna because they thought that was her name yeah. on the mask. They didn't understand that it represented Breonna Taylor because they didn't know who Breonna Taylor was. These yeah. are other incoming Congress people. These are people who are being sent to Washington to set federal policy who have never heard the name Breonna Taylor and don't know what that is. Well, and, and somebody had yeah. was talking to uh, Tommy Tuberville, the, the former Auburn coach who now has, he's the Senator elect from Alabama who will take Doug Jones place. Mm -hmm. They were talking to him about, you know, he said something about the three branches of government, which he thinks are the executive, the Senate and Congress. No. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, this is a Senator, an incoming Senator. 
He does not know the three branches of government. Yeah. Well, he, he's kind of, I mean, if, if I'm generous, he's got two. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure he's, I don't trust him to understand what their job roles are, but yeah. wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, this is, how do you set policy in a country that you don't even understand? Right. It's like, well, how, how is he even, how could he even run if he can't pass an eighth grade civics test? If you don't know the three branches of government, you can't pass eighth grade civics. Yeah, this isn't some weird ass detailed government, you know, trivia. Right. <laughs> this is like, the, how is the government set up on the high level, right? Like, this yeah. is the high level picture here. This is not like into the weeds. Yeah. Oh, yeah no. It's a trick question, you know. This is the, the senator-elect from Alabama. So it's like, okay, I guess, you know, the upside is at least they didn't elect the pedophile, but still. That's that's a really low bar. It is. <laughs> oh, God, you know? But like, even like, yeah, we got the uh, the, the individual the going to the House, uh, Marjorie Green, who won in Georgia and has supported QAnon conspiracies oh, yes. publicly and has put it out there, was unabashed, you know, has behaved like even i think there was a republican that chastised mm-hmm. her like just the way that she was talking about someone else and i think his response essentially was along the lines of you you are an elected representative like act like it something like that like yeah. you're you're an elected representative now you need to begin acting like it, it was something along those lines tell trump right i mean <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna be so presidential like you're just not gonna i know how to be presidential right isn't that what he said when he was coming in just wait i could be presidential and the closest he ever got was when he was able to read a speech and not insert his own views. Right. Then we could all to say, actually follow wow. the speech. <laughs> wow, he didn't completely muck it up. Um, isn't that a fantastic? So if you get on your, if you got on the ticket by riding the Trump train, I'm not expecting any of those people to chill out in, during their terms. Like I expect they're going to just be Trump clones mm-hmm. that go in there and are as obnoxious and destructive as they can be, um, completely unyielding and uncooperative. I'll, I hope, you know, I would hope I'm wrong. And if I am wrong, I'll be glad. Sometimes there's things I would be happy to be wrong about. And this is one of them. But she was already tweeting about masks, masks, masks. Like, that's all I'm hearing is about these masks and COVID. And it's like, if you ha- how can you set policy if you don't understand what it is? If you won't listen to experts, if, you, if you're just going to get up there and pull information out of your ass, which is what Trump has been doing for four years, and then just surround yourself with other people. And, and I guess the one saving grace is that she won't be surrounded by other people who are just going to go along with her. She's stepped out of that echo chamber now, and she's going to have to listen to some experts that come in and testify that are going to be willing to tell her what for. And that brings us kind of to um, a couple other things. So before we move into the Senate and, um, and, and those down ballot races, I want to get into the transition that isn't happening because we're looking at lawsuits. So what's holding us up right now isn't just an obstinate president, but is a network of people, including law firms and other representatives who are supporting this bid and pundits who are coming out and trying to sow distrust of the elections, even though we have like memos coming out saying this was one of the most secure elections we've ever held. And that's amazing considering the logistics of how many states had to change their systems in order to accommodate COVID and accommodate the numbers of people who were going to vote and also the numbers of people who were going to vote, just the volume, the sheer volume. This had such a potential to be a complete mess 
And it turned out to actually be mostly peaceful, mostly mundane, mostly just people going in, voting. And, you know, there were some long lines in some areas, but there was none of the unrest and violence that a lot of people were fearing might take place. There were a few arrests made and some people who tried to stir up trouble, but perfectly well-run elections with results that are reliable. And yet we have a president and a whole infrastructure behind him that's trying to undermine that on the way out the door. That being said, Phil, you had some information on some MAGA committee emails that you had received. I would say maybe three weeks or two and a half or three weeks or so before the election. Uh, I, I started getting emails from the, this is the Trump Make America Great Again Committee. So this is the, the Joint Fundraising Committee authorized and composed of Donald J. Trump for President and the Republican National Committee. It was only one subscription to this one particular source. And prior to the election, like going, uh, going out, as soon as I signed up, I started to get about six to eight emails per day coming in from uh, the Trump campaign. I mean, they were just all over the place. And what I found interesting about it first was just how they were trying to appeal to voters. And so some of them focused on, they focused on essentially what, what would happen if you didn't. And so they were you know, trying to be very scary about their language. And so they were saying that, you know, oh, well, uh, like th- this one here, um, the Trump has lowered taxes for millions, defended the unborn, projected your religious liberties, prioritized our military and vet- veterans. However, all of this is set to be undone unless you step up as a patriot, no less. And they, they kept hammering this message here and there. And given the bubble that folks are in, it's like this stuff would be very effective. Like just reading it and how the progress was done because it got increasingly desperate as the time went on. And so they started matching, we're going to match you 700% to your donation. Then it was 800, 825. 850, then 900, 925 towards the very election itself. It was, we will match your donation to a thousand percent if you donate something in, which is interesting to me because I'm like, if you're going to match it to a thousand, just take it from the person who's going to give the thousand percent. Like just, obviously they got the bankroll. Like they're just, (laughs) they're just putting it out there. There's probably probably limits, right? On how much individuals or uh, institutions can donate in a single pop. So they probably, I'm sure they're working it so that they can take advantage of, of that. It was so funny as it hit as election day hit and there started to be a lot of congratulatory, congratulatory. So Florida, uh, when that one came out, there was an email that came out that said, Oh, thank you, Florida. We did it. Blah, blah, blah. But in order to keep going, you, you know, please contribute more. That was, that was a common, every single one of these emails had a call for money. Like there was nothing just to say that, hey, you did awesome. Thank you so much for your support. It was, we need that, those Benjamins. When the election happened, starting on November the 4th, so this is the day after the election, the first email that I get, well, should I say the last one on that day, 
headline, they want to steal the selection from us. Like right right out the gate, not sugarcoating to say, you know, we're going to go to the last vote. We're going to fight to the last vote to make sure everything's counted. It was Democrats are going to try to steal this. Uh, quote, just like I predicted from the start, mail-in ballots are leading to chaos like you've never seen, plain and simple. The radical left is going to do whatever it takes to try to rip a Trump-Pence victory away from you. And that's why I'm coming to you now. And this rhetoric just kept going on. And it's one thing to, to lose or to even appear like you're going to lose, you know, based on projections and polls and everything that's going on. But when you put these kind of messages out, and I mean, even in this email, he calls the left wing, he says the left wing mob is trying to undermine our election. And that's how he refers to the left, radical left. So like he will use all these emails, use all these terms to demonize everyone who is not in your in-group. And the dangerousness, I don't even know if that's a word, the, <laughs> the dangerousness it is right now of what this can do for people that unquestioningly look at these emails to say like, Donald Trump is telling me that uh, like in this one, I'm asking my fiercest and most loyal defenders like you to fight back. And of course, contribute is, is the next line uh, on that side. But this rhetoric has gotten so bad as time has gone on. The email, the number of emails has gone down to about four per day on average, I'm getting. But when the coronavirus, when Pfizer talked about the coronavirus vaccine, boom, there was an email coming from the Trump campaign to say the success of a coronavirus vaccine would only be announced after an election, as I've long said. This is, you know, coming from Donald Trump's words. Pfizer and others probably didn't have the courage to make this historic announcement before November 3rd because they hoped it would help keep me from winning big. And the focus on himself and the selfishness and the self-centeredness that comes through. And these are, I mean, he's not writing these himself. These are coming from some campaign well, manager. What's funny, what's funny, though, is he didn't predict that. He kept telling us he was going to announce a vaccine before the election. Oh, he kept yeah. telling us that. that. To say I've been saying they weren't going to do this is absolutely absurd because we all heard him say repeatedly. He had to be corrected multiple times by professionals and experts who said, it's unlikely that you're going to see this vaccine before the election because Trump kept you know, saying this is going to happen before the elections. You'll see this. We'll have that vaccine before the elections. He never said we're not going to have it. Other people were telling him we're not going to have it. He was the one saying we would. I mean, this, this is from, you know, a page right out of 1984. Pfizer, I know that they, they took that extra step to make sure they say the funding for this project and everything else had nothing to do with, with warp the speed. project Warp Speed. Right. However, in this uh, particular email, uh, right after he says, you know, that Pfizer and others didn't have the courage because they would keep me from winning big as if that was their concern. <laughs> I was like, they, they were making money regardless. Let's be real clear. Uh, but the next thing he says is truth is if Joe Biden were president, you wouldn't have a vaccine for another four years, nor would the U uh, U.S. food and drug administration have approved it so quickly. The bureaucracy would have destroyed millions of lives. And that's the part I was kind of floored by because I'm like, the inaction, the downplaying, the mocking of people who wear masks early on in the pandemic, all of these actions that you did, discouraging people from wearing it, even 
when you had a mask on, uh, saying while you're at the podium talking to potentially millions of Americans or listening, or at the very least it was going to be rebroadcast on Fox News or wherever else, saying, you can wear a mask, I'm probably not going to. And that's the message you're projecting to uh, your folks. I was uh, telling my friend here recently, I ordered a to-go order months ago. This was back in June or so, when restaurants could start opening again. And I went to this this restaurant to just get pick up a to-go order, in and out, had my mask on, no mm-hmm. problem. I walked in and holy, I shit you not, you would have never thought a pandemic was going on at all. Every booth was filled up. The entire bar was full. And I'm sitting there looking like, wow. what the fuck is happening in here? I paid for it and I waited, I waited outside until I got a call that my food is ready. I picked it up and I headed straight home. And people looked at me. There was this elder gentleman that was sitting at a booth with like five other people, uh, no mask on, of course, because you know people are eating or, or whatnot, and looking at me because I have on this big KN95 <laughs> mask, and I'm not taking it off. You know, I'm just, oh, it was. And he looked at me, stared at me for like 30 seconds or so, and I stared back because you know I'm that mofo. I have no problem. <laughs> wow. But he was looking at me as if I was doing something wrong or something by wearing a mask into this establishment when no one but the wait staff and the bartenders and the cooks were wearing masks. No one else had on masks. And I'm just like, I cannot believe that this is happening right now. I'm out of here. I'm never, I'm never coming, even for a to-go order. I'm not coming back. But those folks that would be so comfortable in that environment, if Trump was putting out, pumping out this information left and right, Time and time again, each time he got on the freaking mic trying to downplay everything, how many lives were affected by his actions. And I don't even think he can comprehend that his actions may have caused the suffering of other people, not even just death, but permanent injury to your lungs. If it hits your lungs and stays there, even if you get better, you could have permanent uh, disability in your lungs as far as their usage percentage is concerned, for example. It's so much that's there. And to read that in this freaking email, this was uh, this came out two days ago. This was November 12th at 5.22 p.m. Uh, this email went out, looking for m- more money, of course, and they'll match you a thousand percent, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, but wow. it was like, you are so full of it. And people would believe this, like those folks at the March today would take this like, like it was nothing. And they would regurgitate it online as if it's the gospel truth, just because he said it, which is one of the dangerous legacies that are going to come from this presidency is his training of people to rely on him for information and no one else. And I think this morning, you just reminded me that I believe this morning I heard there was something like 130 Secret Service agents are either sick with COVID or in quarantine because they've been exposed because Trump has just been dragging them around to these rallies. And it's absolutely unbelievable. When he got out of Walter Reed, he took his mask off on television and walked right into the house, stood there with a mask on, made a point to take it off, turn Mm -hmm. around and walk into the house. I mean, how much more defiant can you get? It's just a massive, you know, screw you to mask wearing, to any sort of mitigation, any sort of protections for people in the meantime, while we wait for a vaccine. And, you know, it's important to note that the Pfizer vaccine, it could 
not pass safety tests in the next two months. We don't know how long, how long does that immunity last because whoever they've given it to, they, they haven't been able to test long term. Does it last a year? Does it last four months? Does it, you know, will the, will the results be repli- replicated? So there's, there's a lot to, to take in there and we can't have all our hopes resting on a vaccine. And in the meantime, we have to take steps to be responsible. And it's so ironic that this party of self-responsibility is basically turning their backs on the simplest of things. Just put on a tiny article of clothing in order to protect everybody. And they can't even manage that. Not only that, but in terms of epidemiology, the fact that they've allowed this to ravage, you know, the entire country means that if somebody's developing a vaccine, the possibility that a mutation will occur that will render the vaccine ineffective is much greater when you have this community spread because that's how the vaccine or that's how the virus mutates is through community spread and infecting multiple hosts. They've already had to do a culling of a mink population in, I think it was Denmark, because they detected a variant of the coronavirus in the mink population. And so far, I guess it hadn't infected humans, but they said they can't take that risk because that's a major mutation right there. It's so irresponsible on so many levels, and it has the potential to guarantee that the vaccine is always chasing the virus which is exactly the situation you don't want. I mean, one of the reasons we that we had practically, well, we had eradicated measles in this country prior to the anti-vaxxers coming on board was because measles is very stable. It doesn't mutate very much. And so the vaccine that we developed 45 years ago, 50 years ago, still works. It's not different because, you know, the virus doesn't mutate and we've been able to contain it so well. I mean, a good example of a vaccine that you do have to get annually is the flu shot, right? Exactly. We, get, we get that updated because of um, changes in the vac- in the virus. Right. It mutates regularly. It makes its way from humans to other animals, back to humans, acquires mutations along the way. And so you, you need a new vaccine every year. So right. ho- hopefully we have an administration coming in that's going to take some steps to educate people. And I, mean, I know that there's going to be some folks that just aren't going to have it, have it, aren't going to hear it, but hopefully we can get more people on board with mask wearing and uh, social distancing. But oh. on the, on the silver lining side of this transition being such a mess is that there are lawsuits happening and Trump is giving us the best test of election integrity that we could ever wish for. So he is testing his any and every piece of evidence they are able to find of election fraud. They are now able to bring into the courts using high-powered law firms who are going to be heard in conservative states with conservative judiciaries who are going to rule on these cases about whether or not we're seeing massive voter fraud in an era where we had mass mail-in voting, the biggest number of people ever voted, this is the best test of was there mass fraud. And so far what we've been seeing is Trump tweeting claims of mass fraud and his lawyers going into court with nothing. There is nothing. And those suits are being lost, they're being pulled, they're being backed out of. And they just lost one of the law firms who was pulling out. And it was interesting because the headline over at Fox was implying that the way they wrote it was something like they're pulling out while there's threats happening. Now, 
I have no doubt that law firm is probably getting threats because in this hostile era of what's going on with our politics right now, I really don't think that you could speak up one way or other without getting some threats. You're going to get threats because that's what's happening at this point. But this is a law firm who has done a lot of controversial cases. This is not their first rodeo. They've taken on clients who were not pretty and they're doing it again now. They knew what they were walking into. We've had four years of Trump. They understand the environment. They understood what would happen. And they decided to go about this and help him file these suits. A, a, law, a lawyer or a firm can be sanctioned for frivolous lawsuits. And it's my view that they're probably more concerned with their, with their firm or with their lawyers being hit with, with filing too many frivolous lawsuits then they are scared of some trolls online. I agree. I think that and there's the embarrassment factor of having to go in and, and present these ridiculous arguments. And in one case, you know, the judge was asking, so are you asserting these, it was some, several hundred ballots, are you um, asserting that these ballots are fraudulent? And they had to admit, no, that's, that's not what we're saying. And then the next question was, are you claiming that uh, some ruling on these several hundred ballots will change the outcome of, you know, the election in that state. Oh, no, Your Honor, that's not what we're saying. And so basically it was like there was no point. Right. They didn't, they weren't claiming that the, the ballots were fraudulent or that a ruling either way would change the outcome of the election. That, to me, is the definition of a frivolous lawsuit. Well, the other thing that's interesting is they're accepting the Senate results on the same ballots that they're saying are, are um, you know, fraudulent. So they're, they're rejecting the presidential race, but accepting the Senate race results on the same ballots. Right. And somebody pointed out that, you know, if, if Democrats were these master fraudsters who were stealing the presidential election, why wouldn't we also steal the Senate? That's what someone posted and said the master plan was to manipulate the ballots and then reelect Mitch McConnell. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But this is the thing I, the thing I love here is that from this day forward, when I hear a conservative screaming about election fraud, I am going to tell them S T F U because you had weeks and weeks where the courts were absolutely open to you. Friendly, conservative state judiciaries were open and Trump was bringing in the best lawyers he could hire to present the evidence that he had and they found nothing substantial. Yeah, like over it up. This, we need to put this to bed. We need to put the voter fraud thing to bed. It's about voter suppression. That's what these rules are for. Yeah. They are not in place to you know, protect the election integrity. They are in place to suppress the votes. And Trump, unwittingly through these lawsuits is proving that. And not only that, but you know, it's Republican secretaries of state who are certifying (laughs) election results and saying, uh, yeah, there's like no fraud here. We did a good fair election. It's good. Yeah. After Georgia does that in 5 million vote hand count, they can shut up. I mean, I don't know what else (laughs) to say. I don't want to hear it anymore. Now I'm sure they're still going to bring it up. But my response is going to be, talk to the hand. Go tell it to Trump because he couldn't find it. He was your biggest champion. That was your biggest battle. And you failed to show up. You couldn't find the evidence. You had nothing. It was nothing. And 
you don't get to keep shouting voter fraud. I mean, I can't stop you from shouting it, but nobody needs to listen to you from this day forward. Yeah, yeah out in uh, Pennsylvania, there was a, a lawsuit on the case of observers, you know, ob- allowing observers from both sides to observe the counting of the votes. And so uh, there was a minor victory, like where a judge ruled that election observers from the Trump campaign uh, could stand a little bit closer. So they were 10 feet right. because of COVID, but now, but now they would be six feet. Uh, mm-hmm. However, uh, by the end of that day, so uh, the lawyers for the Trump campaign had filed another emergency petition with the federal court claiming that election officials in the city were not abiding by that decision. They were not abiding by the state court's decision and asking that the count in Philly be delayed. Yes, specifically uh, for <laughs> Philly. Now, when the judge asked, did, were there observers you know, from your side that were allowed to observe the counting of the ballots, uh, they said that it was not meaningful observation, not meaningful observation. So the judge asked again, and uh, Trump's lawyers said that there was a non-zero number of observers from your side. There was non-zero number of our observers uh, in, essentially saying that, yes. yes, we did have some observers there. So this was Judge Paul, uh, Paul S. Diamond then chime back to say, then what's the problem? Mm-hmm. And that that said, like when I read that, I loved it just, just in general, yeah. uh, just an exchange like that. But I cannot imagine how mortifying it must be for some of these attorneys. I mean, they're taking on these cases, so they know what they're getting into. So there's only so much my of my sympathies can go towards them. But it's like to go in front of a judge and just to kind of be chided in that way to say, what's the problem then? Like, did you have yeah. observers? Yes, you had to admit it because, of course, you could be sanctioned if you lied in court in that way. So they couldn't, I mean, to say there's a non-zero number, right. who says that yeah. in the first place? It's a non-zero number yeah. there? Like, when, when, you have to, when you're manipulating language like that, it's just an attempt to be dishonest, right? So it's, it's, it's one amazing. thing. It's one thing to frame your argument in a in a way that's you know useful to you. It's another thing to just simply be trying to be as dishonest as you can be without breaking the law. And this, these, the, the response from that judge that you're describing, it's basically the judge's way of saying, "Why are you wasting the court's time with this?" Yeah. Exactly. Right. Because that's how I would feel about it. Uh, they ultimately dropped that particular suit and. Uh, there was, a, for that particular uh, place over in Philadelphia, there were 120 observers that were allowed, 60 for Democrats and 60 for the Republicans. So there was more than enough eyes on the action to make sure that things stay, you know, they were high uh, integrity levels in the counting process in Philadelphia. And so, but little things like that, uh, it's, as, as Tracy said, I don't want to hear another effing thing in the future if like this is the best you've got like th- this is you're finding all the cases you're being heard judges you know they're pulling you into the courtroom they're hearing your emergency petitions everything else and then when the rubber meets the road we get it's an oh we had a non-zero number of observers from, <laughs> from our yeah. team that's what you've got like no and this is this was the best test i mean this was where they had the, like i say the huge number of mail-in votes 
giant national election, tons of new voters. Like, I mean, if ever there was going to be an election where you could find something going wrong, this was it. This was the best test and they're failing. Yeah. Well, and if I recall, um, in Pennsylvania, weren't they live streaming the vote counts? I'm not sure. I'm not I, sure. I saw some, uh, some of the folks get up and, and give like, uh, what do you call it, updates and summaries every now and then. They were very, the states were super transparent as far as getting up. And I even saw one state get up, uh, they had a guy get up and he was talking about, hey, I made a mistake when I announced this other thing, you know, yesterday. And so let me correct that and explain what, what happened and what it was that we misunderstood and, and we've got it fixed and this is what the result was and what it changed. I mean, they were super, super transparent. And I think the states knew that they were going to be under a lot of scrutiny. So they've been super careful. And I'm very glad that they took the steps that they took and that they have really taken care to make sure that these elections had integrity. Yeah. So they, they did do a live stream. This was uh, in Philadelphia, as votes were being tallied. Uh, this is a techcrunch.com that I'm looking at this from. Courtesy of the Philadelphia City Commissioners, uh, they had... A, a live stream and they it's literally still streaming live right now even though there's nobody there that's funny <laughs> that's amazing there's like that's one amazing. person like there's one person walking around some person in the suit and tie just chilling out in the background that's so random but yeah it's literally still live <laughs> right now <laughs> that's well, the thing people are saying oh well you know they you know they they did the count behind closed doors and all this stuff. And it's like, no, you literally could like log in and watch. It was live. Apparently so. Yeah. How about that? No state wanted to be the state with problems. Right. right. Exactly. Because it would involve so much scrutiny. And then all your election officials, your county side election officials, your state side secretary of state, like everybody like goes under all that it, scrutiny but as uh, tracy mentioned earlier like the one in georgia like trump was all mad and everything but it's like that's a georgia like your governor and you're talking about your secretary of state and the local like you're these are your people yeah. <laughs> like they, these are your people and you're exactly. saying that they messed you up even though that wouldn't benefit you know your your party altogether. it's it's a very interesting argument in general This concludes the first hour of my post-election conversation with Jen Peoples and Phil Session. Join me next time for part two, which I hope will still be timely in this fast-paced political environment of the post-2020 election world. for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.